that song that we sang, the, the one right before the message, that last line that we sang, for he has cleansed and sanctified us, he himself has set us free. I don't know if you know the history of that hymn, but uh, it's, it's a beautiful, it's an old hymn, um, and uh, it's just become a, a very quickly one that I've kind of been reintroduced to, and it's quickly become one of my favorites, um, just of, of the rich theology, but also practicality of, of that hymn, and so uh, I hope that you were able to take that in. Uh, if you're if you're joining us, or if you uh, you know have slept since last week, and you're not familiar with where we're at, we're in the book of Ruth, and we're in Ruth chapter three. And as we are journeying through this book, it's kind of crazy. We only have one more week, uh, and then we are finished with the book of Ruth, and then we are going to launch into our summer sermon series, going through uh, a book that perhaps I would imagine maybe the majority of you have maybe not gone through before. It's the book of Amos, and we're going to be looking and journeying through one of the minor prophets over the course of the summer, and that's with certainly some intentionality uh, as we journey through that. And so in just a couple of weeks, we'll be starting that, that sermon series uh, I hope that you have your Bible. Again, we'll have words on Scripture on the screen. You might have it there on your phone. But as I've mentioned to you the last few weeks for especially this study, uh, my hope is that you are just marking up this thing and you're highlighting and underlining and circling and drawing arrows so that way you have this as a resource later on. I've tried to keep uh, as little on the screen as possible when it comes way to notes so that way you can add just your own notes that the Lord has laid upon your heart whenever we're going through this. Uh, by way of review, though, just to remind you, is in week one, one of the things that we found as we opened the book of Ruth is it opened with a lot of, of hardship. It, we, we see that our main characters of Ruth and Naomi have experienced a lot of great loss. There's been famine, uh, there's been the death of spouses, uh, there's been so much that has gone on with, within that first chapter, but the key word, and this is what I'm going to do to kind of tee us up for today, the key word that we focused on in Ruth chapter 1 was the word chesed. It's that Hebrew word that uh, it's, it's difficult for us in our English language maybe to give it just a word, to give it its complete uh, kind of gravity and understanding of what this word means. And so I've shared with you multiple times that chesed is that idea of, of this idea of loyalty or faithfulness or mercy or grace or kindness, compassion. That, that's the idea of chesed. And what we find is that Ruth demonstrates incredible chesed to her mother-in-law, Naomi to abandon her homeland, to abandon her land of Moab, and to journey on with her to the land of Israel. And here she is, this foreigner, this woman that would have been identified as someone who was an idolater or someone who was... Um, would, would maybe uh, some of the history of the Moabite women of leading Israelite men down a path of sexual immorality. And what we find is Ruth really kind of almost has this really conversion experience on her road and on her way back with Naomi to Jerusalem, or excuse me, to Bethlehem. And she says, <clears throat> your God will be my God, your people will be my people, and that's where I'm going to die. Like she is loyal. She shows chesed uh, to Naomi. And yet there at the very end of the chapter, of chapter one, Naomi comes back and she just says uh, to her old friends she hasn't seen in like 10 years, they're like, hey, I can't believe it's Naomi. And she says, don't call me Naomi. My name is now Mara because I am bitter and because the hand of the Lord Almighty has basically been against me. I left this place full and I've come back empty. And what's so sad is she doesn't recognize that right next to her is maybe not the supernatural miraculous hand of God evident before her, but maybe kind of the uh, the unseen hand of God, of where literally the, the chesed of God is being demonstrated to Naomi by the person of Ruth standing right next to her. She did not come back empty. She came back with, with Ruth. 
And then as we journey into chapter 2, the key word of chapter 2 last week was favor or grace. And we saw again and again that you have these two women that as they journey into chapter 2, what they are in great need of is they need family and they need food. They need provision and they need protection. And what they find in chapter 2 is they find food. They find provision. Ruth is hoping for favor as she's going to go glean the fields. And then we saw all the not coincidences of how God's sovereign hand and providential hand was at work for Ruth to just so happen to go to the field of Boaz and to be able to be really taken care of, protected, and also provided for through the person of Boaz. And so what we saw last week was the favor or the grace of God being demonstrated to Ruth and Naomi through the person of Boaz. Again, God at work in the life of his people, even when we may not see it in the supernatural or the miraculous. And I know oftentimes that's what we want. That's what we desire as individuals of God. I want to see you move. I want to see you at work. But don't forget that our God is a God who is constantly at work, even behind the scenes. When you can't see it, He is in control and He is providential. He's not, it's not coincidence of what we're going through. And so today, today I want to, uh, to begin by reading actually chapter 2, verse 20. This is towards the end of last week's story, of last week's chapter. But it says, at this point, Ruth has come back from the field. She's got all of this food, and Naomi is incredibly excited, and she says to her daughter-in-law, may he, Boaz, be blessed of the Lord who has not withdrawn, note this, his kindness, there's that word chesed, his kindness to the living and to the dead. Again, Naomi said to her, the man is our relative, he is one of our goel. That's our key word today. He is one of our closest relatives. He is a kinsman redeemer. He is a goel. That is what we're going to see here this morning. And so let's pray and ask God to teach. Father, I'm asking that this morning that our hearts would be open wide to know and receive uh, your kindness and your grace and your favor. But, But Father, today as we look at this passage, to begin to really see your hand at work in our redemption. And so if you would, would you pray where you're at right now, just ask God to give you ears to hear, a mind to understand, so that you can take this truth with you. And if you would, would you pray for me that I'll be a a help to you this morning as we look at this chapter. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So the year was 1989. Uh, I was about eight years old at this point, and the, uh, the halls were abuzz at Jinx West Elementary School. I mean, me and my buddies, we couldn't be more excited because a trailer had come out for a new film, and it was the superhero Batman, the 1989 Batman. You know which one I'm talking about. If you don't, watch it. You'll, you'll treat yourself. And what you find is in this trailer, there's this great moment of where you see Batman grab a guy by uh, kind of his shirt or his collar, and he kind of holds him up, and the guy goes, who are you? And he goes, I'm Batman. And what you've, and, and there's that key question that's asked, and they've kind of just played and had fun with that years to, 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 to go, but this idea of this guy's just so overwhelmed of who, who are you? And Batman knows exactly who he is. I'm Batman. That is our question for today. Who are you? Can you, can you identify or articulate, communicate to people, maybe even very simply, who you are? And how do you know exactly who you are? 
Because unfortunately, we're in a day and a time right now where if you just turn on the news or if you go onto your phone or to your tablet, we have a lot of people today that are struggling with identity and who they are. And so today, let's look at that key question that's going to be asked throughout. We'll see it later on in our time this morning. But to begin with, let's look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. It says, that Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security, more literally rest, for you that it may be well with you? Now, is not Boaz our, our kinsman with whose maids you were? Behold, he winnows barley at the threshing floor tonight. Wash yourself, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your best clothes, and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. It shall be, when he lies down, that you shall notice the place where he lies, and you shall go and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will tell you what you shall do. She said to her, all that you say I will do. This first scene of Ruth 3, or Act 3, is I've just entitled it, Naomi has a proposal. Naomi has a proposal. Um, and what's interesting is in the first couple of verses, what Naomi is doing is because it's been, it's been a few weeks since Ruth first interacted with Boaz. Remember at the very end of chapter 2, Naomi, or excuse me, Ruth not only goes through the uh, barley harvest, but also I believe it was through the wheat harvest as well. And so it's been a time period of about maybe two to three months that she's continued to go back to this field of Boaz and to glean. And so a time has gone by, and Naomi, all the way back from the very first verse that we read, chapter 2, verse 20, she understands that Boaz is a person that we need to be keeping our eye on because he is one of our closest of relatives, our kinsman redeemer, our Goel. Like, there's possibilities that are going on here, and as time has marched on, Naomi is doing something that I think, I believe she's being very motherly in this moment. She sees Ruth in her condition but Naomi also sees both of their conditions, and she's like, this man is a good man, and here is an opportunity. And so whenever she makes that statement, it's kind of like maybe when, maybe you're experiencing this now, or, or maybe you have experienced this. Did any of you have that, 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 that well-intentioned parent or grandparent be like, you know, did you notice, did you notice her? because I want you to get married. Did you notice that person? Like, they're giving you not-so-subtle hints. You're like, yes, thank you, Mom. I get it. I, I know that that is a person that's available and that kind of thing. That's what Naomi is doing here. She wants her to have security and rest because, again, this is a little bit kind of, kind of foreign to us today, but part of, part of what's going on is for two women to be widowed and one to be a foreigner in this land without any, um, any husband or anything like that, provision and protection was going to be sparse. Like this was a difficult life for them to live for the rest of their life because they're basically, they're living off of gleaning the fields and without having uh, that, that family member, specifically that, that husband, that Goel to come into their life, the remainder of their life is going to be very difficult. It's going to be very harsh and it's, it's not going to be easy. And whenever Naomi sees Boaz, she sees there's a guy who can provide security and rest for you. She has care and concern for her daughter-in-law. And kind of just a, a, a little bit of a quick word on this is I know that sometimes in our culture, in our day, for I would say the majority of us, sometimes what we have is we have parents or grandparents or closest of friends or church brothers and sisters in Christ who will say, 
man, you need to be reading your Bible, you need to be in the Word, you should be sharing your faith, you, and we're giving all of this advice, and then at times when it comes to someone that we care about and they're in a dating relationship, we're like, well, you make your own decisions. You're only going to be making the most probably important decision in your life on this earth outside of placing your faith in Christ, but you just figure it out on your own. You are very intelligent, 18-year-old or 20-year-old or whatever age. It's like, you got this, as opposed to understanding that there can be such wisdom of those who have gone on before, who have maybe learned from some of their mistakes, to be able to help navigate and say, you know, I know just like last week you were asking me, you know, uh, how to work on like my financial statement or, or how to be able to maybe invest, um, but I'll let you figure out who it is that you're going to marry all on your own. Like, you got this. And we are so hands-off with it because we don't want to be offensive, but there's so much biblically about fam- family and church engagement and involvement when it comes to this most important and sacred of, of institutions that we do have involvement. Now, I say this with a caveat because sometimes parents or grandparents or close friends will hear this and they'll go, well, now I can just get in their business and I can do whatever I want to do and be like, you can't date him and you can't date her. As with anything, when we hear counsel from someone, we should take it in and receive it with humility, but we should also filter it through our own personal relationship with the Lord to be able to understand what I need to do. So it's not that we take counsel and we just take it all in, but you should have the humility to receive the counsel from those who are older, who are wiser, who have experienced what you haven't. Now, that's not to say there might be some who you look at maybe a parental figure who is either not in a relationship with the Lord, very distant from the Lord, and you're like, so I have to take advice from them? Well, again, I think it's that wisdom of understanding of who would be wise to receive counsel from in the process of going about the issue of dating and courtship, because I don't think anybody, I haven't found anybody who said, man, I hope when I go into this relationship that it just, it just crashes and burns. I hope that's what I get out of this. It's no, none of us want that. None of us think that that's what's going to go into it. But you've seen it and I've seen it with your friends and family members of like, ah, there were red flags there and no one spoke up. And sometimes we've, we've, I've heard this statement Many times, if you love me, just support me kind of things. No, not always the case. Sometimes, but not always. And so, what we have is, when, when she's talking about this closest of relatives, this kinsman, what's foreign to us is there are two Old Testament practices that Naomi is familiar with, and I'm sure that she has shared with Ruth, and certainly Boaz would be familiar with. One of them is called the, uh, the Leverite process. This is actually a Latin word, but it's a Leverite process, which is basically, you can read this in Deuteronomy 25 in your own time, but essentially there was a practice that God had instituted within the nation of Israel that if you died as a husband, then your widowed spouse would marry, it would be the responsibility of that person's brother to then marry and to be able to have children with that woman as now his spouse in order to continue the lineage and the line. It's kind of different and foreign to us, but that was a practice they had and it was for a purpose. So that's one thing, the Leverite marriage. The other is this idea of kinsman redeemer or goel. This was, again, an Old Testament custom and practice that was very familiar to them, but kind of foreign to us. Again, not Deuteronomy 25, but Leviticus 25 is where you can go to get more study on that. 
The whole point of a goel or a kinsman redeemer is that there's a responsibility to secure land and persons who are next of kin. So kind of in a word, the purpose of a kinsman redeemer was to preserve. So maybe think of that when you think of goel. It was to preserve through the process of redemption. You're redeeming this person who is kind of bankrupt and without a means, and you're going to come in and you're going to preserve their line, their name, their family, their land, and so on and so forth. And so a few things just to kind of, I'm going to throw up on the screen for you. When you think of a kinsman redeemer, this is what would be necessary to be qualified as a kinsman redeemer. The first is you have to be a relative. It's that simple. You've got to be a relative. You've got to be within the family or the clan in order to be considered and to be eligible to be a kinsman redeemer. The second is you had to be one who had the means to bring about redemption. You, you, you couldn't just be bankrupt yourself. Like You had to have the means by which to actually redeem the individual. And so far, we're seeing that Boaz, with Ruth, is someone who has now hit both of these qualifications. But there was a third one. A kinsman redeemer had to be someone, a goel, who had the, also the desire to accomplish the redemption. It wasn't that you just had to be a goel out of compulsion or just legalism. It was you had to be a relative, you had to have the means, and you had to have the desire to be able to be that kinsman redeemer. So though Boaz qualifies in the first two aspects, he still has to desire or want to do this thing. And so Naomi has concocted this plan, and she presents this proposal to Ruth of this is what you need to do because we gotta, we got we to gotta take some action at this point, and we need, to, we need to make this happen. And so she says, Boaz is going to be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Again, I've never winnowed barley. Have any of you ever winnowed barley? I had just curiosity. All right, zero for zero. Perfect. So we're all on the same page. Essentially, what they would do is at the end of the barley and the wheat harvest— they would actually go a little bit outside of the village, away from the village, to on the hillside, and they would receive, um, off of like the Mediterranean Sea, they would receive kind of that sea breeze that would come along, and what would happen is they would with like, think of like a pitchfork or maybe even their hands, they would kind of throw up the barley or throw up the wheat, and what would happen is the chaff on the wheat or the barley was lighter than the actual grain of the barley or the wheat. So the barley or the wheat, the grains, they would fall to the ground and the chaff would blow away. So you're remained, you remain with the good stuff and the stuff that's no good, it, it flies off. And what would happen is you have to remember, the people of Bethlehem have experienced 10 years of famine. There's got to be almost like a party kind of scenario going on to having this like winnowing party at the threshing floor of like, we finally have food which is good for us as individuals, but it's also good for our community. Like, this is great. We actually have food to offer to people. But it's also not just food for Boaz and for his employees. It's money. And so whenever they would thresh the, uh, I think that's right, this, this, the, the wording of this is just throwing me off all week. So whenever they're threshing the barley on the winnowing floor, whenever they would do this, it was believed that by the time they get done and have had that hard day's work of doing all that, they would just have kind of this heap of barley or a heap of wheat, and they didn't, would, probably wouldn't have time to be able to take care of everything else they need to, so they would spend the night there and even kind of celebrate the, the, the crop that they had finally produced. And so they would have kind of a bit of a party, they would kind of celebrate with a meal and that kind of thing, and what they would do is they would actually sleep there because people like to steal. And people like to take what they didn't have to work for. And so they're kind of hanging out there at the threshing floor in order to make sure that their profit is maintained and the food for themselves and the community is also not pillaged and taken, uh, taken away. 
So that's kind of the scene and the setting of what Boaz is doing. And so in verse 3, we get some advice from Naomi. The first thing she says is she tells Ruth, take a bath. Second thing she says is put on some perfume. And the third thing that she says is I need you to put on a nice outfit. And commentators think that this was for a couple of reasons. One, she may have still been in her mourning clothes. We don't know if that's the case or not. So this might have been a visible marker for someone to see that you're no longer in the mourning phase, but you're in the I'm available phase. That's a possibility. But another way I think to put it is just simply this. Stop wearing your work clothes, get out of your sweatpants, and put on a dress. Like, look a little bit nice. The way that my dad put this, I remember him vividly when he was talking about this. He said, he said basically what Nehemiah is saying is put some paint on the barn. And I was like, Dad, that is awful. So I didn't say it. He said it. Um, but, but, but put some paint on the barn and, and make yourself presentable. Uh, make, make, make yourself a little bit attractive because what Boaz has seen you in is just kind of in your work clothes and your grimy clothes and that kind of thing. And it's going to make a difference. And this is the thing. She's basically saying, I want you to present yourself so that you're, you, you're, you're kind of attractive, like you're attracting Boaz, like you're presenting yourself in a different light than when you're working the fields. And this is the thing, attraction is a good thing. It's okay to be attracted to someone and to want to have someone be attracted to you. But, but here's the key thing, especially for parents, grandparents, but also for our singles, just, just listen to this. It's one thing to make oneself attractive, but it's another thing to make oneself seductive. There is a difference, and this is what I found with, with, with my wife and also just growing up with like just friends of mine that were girls. They knew the difference between a girl strutting around who was attractive and a girl who was strutting around who was trying to be seductive. They, girls knew the difference, and I'll tell you this, guys know the difference too. We know the difference between someone presenting themselves to be attractive versus seductive. And this used to be something that we would really kind of share and be like, girls, you know, be mindful of your dress, and we look at First Timothy. But this is also something that's kind of come along here, I would say, over the last 20 years of, of guys. There's a difference between presenting yourself as attractive and trying to be seductive. That's become a thing now. And so be mindful of that, because if what you're wanting to do, and if the goal for you as a follower of Jesus is, I want a good, godly marriage that is going to thrive, don't begin it with seduction. Begin it just with attraction. Don't present yourself in that manner. And for you as looking for someone to be joined with for a lifetime, because remember, our definition of marriage is one man, one woman for life, that if that is the case, then I want that relationship to have at its foundation that it's going to be built on, yeah, I was attracted to this person, but I wasn't seduced by this person. And so, Naomi is saying, make yourself attractive. And then what we have here is, this is where things kind of take a little bit of a turn. She's given some decent, I would say, advice. And then there's something here to where sometimes Scripture is descriptive, and sometimes scripture is prescriptive. You know how like you go to the doctor and they give you a prescription to go get medication? He's saying, take this thing. In scripture, there's the same idea. There's going to be certain passages of scripture that we read, and because we read the advice that Ruth gives to Naomi, this is not a prescription for ladies or for guys of how you would pursue someone of the opposite sex. This is, this is not something that I would advise to any of our young ladies or to a daughter of mine 
or an adoptive daughter of mine of like, you want to get you a man? What we're going to do is we're going to have you spy on him, sneak into his place in the middle of the night. Then we're going to have you uncover your feet, which has some kind of interesting overtones to it. Like it, 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 probably people who are reading this were blushing a little bit of like, well, what does that mean? Because he uses, or Naomi uses the words, uncover his feet and lie down. Like this is not something that I would say to ladies, if you want to find yourself a man, uh, go to his place after he's eaten, and apparently he has drunk to the point to where he uh, is good in spirits, and that you would go into his place and be like, well, we're going to uncover his feet, and uh, I'm going to lay down beside them, and then whenever he wakes up, Naomi says, whatever he tells you to do, you do it. No, not good advice. I'm not prescribing that to you. But this is the great thing. God, in spite of some of, I would say, error in ways, he can still work. And we're going to see him still work and make this relationship become just a beautiful relationship, so much so that it becomes the lineage and the preservation. Again, there's that Goel sense, that preservation of the line and the lineage of Christ. And so just be mindful that what we're reading is that it worked out for Ruth in this situation, I believe, because of the integrity and the character of a good man like Boaz. But this isn't something that I would prescribe to our young ladies or for parents. I know you may so desire for your loved one to get married. Don't sacrifice purity for the sake of a desire. It's just not worth it. And so what we have is... uh, (laughs) This is how I read it. Uh, Go to the threshing floor. First of all, what? Don't let him know. What? Wait until his belly is full and he's good in spirits. What? Uh, When he lies down, then go to him. What? Uh, Uncover his feet. What? He will tell you what to do. What? That's how I wrote it in my notes. It was just like (laughs) everything you just said, I disagree with. Um, And so, uh, so that's her proposal of the plan from Naomi. Now let's look at scene two. Let's look at scene two, verse six. Uh, This is Ruth and Nax's a plan. You'll notice it's not the exact proposal of a plan that Naomi gave. Some of it's there. So, so she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law had commanded her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap grain, and she came secretly and uncovered his feet and laid down. So at this point, she's done what she was instructed to do. And what we find is there is some wisdom in her bad advice that Naomi gave of it's more than likely that it wasn't just Boaz who was working on the threshing floor. Like this was probably a big crop. And so there's probably workers there. And so Naomi's very big on make sure that you are hiding in the bushes. It's so weird. You're hiding in the bushes and you keep your eye on Boaz and, and you make sure you see where he is actually going to lay down. So you just, you just keep, keep your eyes peeled. Can you imagine, just put yourself in Ruth's shoes for a second. She's a foreign woman in a day and time where we know that women weren't as valued and sometimes seen just as objects, even in Israel. And she's out at night, probably away from the village, in the dark. It's a a recipe for disaster. But here she is, I just see her kind of like looking in the bushes. Could you imagine just her heartbeat? And she sees finally Boaz lay down. And she's like, okay, I'm going to go do what she said. And she makes her way, and then he kind of stirs. She's like, oh, I'm just kidding. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wait again. She's like, she's, like a, she's like a ninja. And so finally she makes her way. She, she finally sees that he goes to sleep, and she goes in there. And some people, they have this question of there's this language that is used of uncovering his feet and lying down. And some people have thought that this is sensual or sexual. 
And I understand where some of that comes from because there's some other passages where it talks about feet as being like a euphemism, and, and I get that. In this instance, when you're studying this passage, context is key when you read Scripture. We don't just throw into it what we think it might be. The context of it, and we're going to see this throughout, is that the integrity and the character of Boaz never once sees any of this as being sinful or in any way uh, sexual or sensual. In fact, I believe that the uncovering of the feet and lying at the feet, one, it's kind of a form of submission, and two, the uncovering of the feet, if, if Tiffany and I were, were laying down for bed, and then in the middle of the night she came and she was like, ha ha, and she uncovered the sheets and my legs were exposed, I'm going to wake up because I'm no longer covered, and so it's going to startle me at some point. And that's what happens with Boaz. His feet are uncovered, he's startled, and, and he sees a, a woman uh, at, 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 at his feet. And so Boaz, uh, look at Look at verse 8. It says, It happened in the middle of the night that the man was startled, bent forward, and behold, a woman was lying at his feet. This is Boaz like, what? What, what, what is going on here? And then in verse 9, what we have is he says to her, so he speaks to her, and here's that key question I mentioned earlier, who are you? We're going to come back to that. Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your maid. So far, I think she's doing what Naomi has said. He'll tell you what to do. Well, he asked a question, you should give a response. That's just a good lesson, ladies, our single ladies. If a guy asks you a question, just give him a response. That's all he's looking for, all right? Uh, It's no more complicated than that. And so, who are you? She answered, and now she goes off script. This is not what Naomi said to do. She says, so spread your covering over your maid, for you are a goel. You are a closest relative. You are a kinsman redeemer. That's the literal word right there, goel. What Ruth is doing is essentially what she's saying is, I want you to pursue me in marriage. Some people see it as a proposal, like Ruth is proposing to Boaz. There's kind of an element to that, but I still think there's a submissiveness here of Ruth, of just simply saying, I'm available, and you're a goel. So if you're interested, here I am. It shows such humility and vulnerability of Ruth to make this kind of statement in this kind of setting It's quite, quite remarkable. So when she says, spread your covering over your maid, again, some people have seen this as sensual or sexual, and that's not the case. It's using the exact same phrase from chapter 2, verse 12, whenever Boaz looks to Ruth after she's been gleaned in the field, and he begins to basically kind of pray over her that the Lord Yahweh would reward her, that the Lord Yahweh would give her full wages, and that you would be under his wings or his protection and seek refuge, it's that same idea of, of Ruth is saying, if, if, if you'll cover me, that's a, that's a symbolic representation that you, you are interested in me and that you want to protect me, that, that you will be like those wings that I could come under and experience refuge. It's clearly something other than sleep with me. And you might say, well, again, how do you know that? What about the language? Well, look at verse 10. Then he said, may you be blessed of the Lord. When sin is going in my life, and when sin is going on in your life, are you bringing the Lord into that conversation? Are you bringing the Lord Yahweh into, may you be blessed? Some of this may be questionable at best, but you've not done anything inappropriate. 
So may you be blessed. May the Lord, may you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. It's not literally daughter, it's just a term of infection. You have shown your last kindness, your chesed, to be better than the first. What, what's the first kindness? The first kindness he heard of was her kindness towards Naomi, of her chesed towards Naomi, of abandoning her land and her country and her family and coming with her and being loyal and devoted and compassionate and chesed toward Naomi. And he's saying, man, this is even greater than that. Like, he's very humbled by this. He says, your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. There's two senses here by most commentators. One, Boaz is probably a little bit older than, than Ruth. A lot of people believe Ruth was probably maybe in her mid-20s, and, and Boaz is probably like in his mid-40s. So he's a little bit older than Ruth. And it's one of those things of like, it seems that she's, it sounds like she'd probably be maybe attractive or desirable. And so it's one of those things of like, you could have gone after these other guys, but you're, you're willing to come after someone who's older and, uh, and that kind of thing. And so that kind of surprises him. And so what you find is that in no way uh, does he take advantage of her or rebuke her. He's humbled and he's stunned. And then he gives her some instructions. Verse 11, now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask. For all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. When he specifically says, for all my people in the city, that's literally the gate. And what this should make your mind think of is, how many of you have read about the Proverbs 31 woman? You ever read Proverbs 31, the virtuous woman, the noble woman of character? If you haven't, go read it, especially young men. Go read it. It's a great kind of here's some qualifications or qualities that I would want to see in someone that I would give and join my life to. But what you have is, this is what's so interesting to me, because this is where I see Scripture and how it's arranged is not coincidental, but it's providential of how God has arranged it. In our copy of an English Old Testament scripture, we have it all divided up a little bit differently than what the Hebrew Bible was uh, composed as. And what happened is, at the end of the Hebrew Bible, there was this group of books called just writings. And the very first of them was Ruth. Right before the writings collection, there was the wisdom collection. And the very last book that was written in the wisdom collection was Proverbs. And so what would happen is, if you were just kind of reading the Bible... And you're going through the book of Proverbs, and then you're like, well, I'll just, I'll just read the next one. I'll pick up the next scroll, and I'll, I'll read now Ruth. Then you would have read, the very last thing you would have read is Proverbs 31, what it means to be a noble or excellent character kind of woman. That's the same language that's being used in this verse. Is the very same language that's being used in Proverbs 31 whenever it launches into an excellent or noble woman. And what happens is you would read Proverbs 31 and you go straight into the book of Ruth and you'd be like, oh, here's an example of an excellent woman. Here's the example of a quality of what a virtuous woman, a noble woman of excellence and character would look like. Not just kind of a description quality like a resume, which is Proverbs 31, it's almost like a resume. Now here's the story of what that would practically look like. Read Ruth to see what that person would look like. And that's exactly what... Um, Boaz is saying, you are a woman of excellence, of noble character. It would immediately tie in for the Hebrew, for the Jew, to be like, she's, she's the virtuous woman. Like, this is who we're talking about in Proverbs 31. And what he does in this moment is, in verse 13, he says, remain this night. Or excuse me, verse 12, I skipped that one. He says, now it is true that I am a close relative or a goel, a redeemer. However, there is a relative closer than I. Remain this night, and when morning comes, if he will redeem you, good, let him redeem you. 
But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you as the Lord lives. Now lie down until morning. Excuse me. So she lay at his feet until morning and rose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that that the woman came to the threshing floor. Again, he said, give me a cloak that is on you and hold it. So she held it and he measured six measures of barley and laid it on her. And then she went into the city. What, what we have is when he says, lie down until, until morning. Again, this is not an image of uh, anything sensual or, or, or sexual. It's just this. I, I believe that Boaz in this moment is, is he's wanting to, again, protect her and her name and her character and her reputation. Because he understands that if she's found in the middle of the night or found in this situation, it will ruin her. And he's just said, people at the gate, which is where people did business, they speak highly of Ruth. He doesn't want her name to be dragged through the mud. Why? Because this probably isn't the best plan (laughs) that was enacted, but it's it's what they have, and he's going to work with what has been given to him, and he's going to protect her because he's a man of character and integrity. And so what happens is is, uh, when he says, lie down until morning, can you imagine the, the no sleep that they got that night. <laughs> She's, I could just see her kind of still laying at his feet. He's laying up there and they're just like, Phew. Boaz is probably just overwhelmed of like, man, what will people think if I, if, if I redeem her? She's a Moabitess. And maybe he's even thinking, man, I finally found someone to give my life to and to be married to. Like you, you read in the language, he wants to marry her. He wants to be the Goel. He wants to redeem her. So there's a desire, a willingness. But it's like, man, there's this one obstacle that we got to go through. There's someone closer in relationship to her, and he has legally, note that word, he has legally, by the law, the right to have her. And so what happens is, is that's Boaz's mind. Can you imagine Ruth, ladies? Can you imagine Ruth laying in that moment, just there trying to go to sleep? And she's like, either way, tomorrow I'm going to have a husband, and it might be a stranger, which is terrifying. Or it might be this man, Boaz. What a crazy night that would have been in their head. I imagine no sleep. And so what Boaz does is right before she leaves is he again provides for her. He already protected her to try to make sure that her name is not besmirched, her character is intact, that she's not just like wandering off. Um, But he's also, again, providing for her. He gives her more food. And isn't this exactly what a goel does? He provides and he protects. Protects the image, her physical uh, presence. Uh, he protects her purity. He even protects his purity in the midst of all of this. He is demonstrating being a goel and a good one uh, at that. And so finally, we come to the last scene. Naomi and Ruth uh, essentially evaluate the encounter. Uh, look at verse 16. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did it go, my daughter? Literally, she says this. I know it's what it says on the screen. Oh, hang on just a second. It doesn't say it yet. Uh, literally what it says in verse 16. Look at your Bible. That's why you bring your Bible. Literally what it says, instead of how did it go, my daughter, it's who are you? It's that key question. Who are you? We'll come back to that. What, Bo, what she ends up doing is saying, basically, Boaz is a good man. This, this, is, this, is a, this is a hopeful situation. And then in verse 17, there's obviously a conversation that happened between Ruth and Boaz that we didn't get until now. 
Ruth says, these six measures of barley, which would have been like 60 pounds. Again, remember last week when Ruth came home with that big old haul? And just, I just picture this, this little girl just kind of picking it up and just going. Again, like 60 pounds. It's even more than last time. Like she is coming home with quite the, the haul of food. It says, these six measures of barley he gave to me. And he said, do not go to your mother-in-law empty-handed. It's the exact same word that you find in chapter 1 when Naomi says, I, have, I left full and I have come back empty. Here's a demonstration of where God is saying, no, you haven't. You had Ruth. You ultimately had God in your life. But in case you were wondering, Boaz doesn't know that conversation, but he's saying, here, I don't want you to go back empty-handed to Naomi. Not saying, I don't want you, Ruth, to go back empty-handed. I want Naomi not to experience being empty-handed. Why? Because she has not been forgotten. She has been cared for and provided for. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. And then verse 18, she said, wait, my daughter, until you know how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest until it has been settled, uh, settled today. That's a difficult thing to do. So <clears throat> as, we, as we wrap up here, I want, I want you to hang with me because this is what we've been building toward. God desires to preserve a people. That's what a goel is. He wants to preserve. He wants to redeem. So God desires to preserve a people unto himself, and so he sends the goel to make redemption possible for you and for me. And that question, two different times that question was posed, who are you? The first time is Boaz to Ruth in the middle of the night of like, who are you? And it's this, it's this incredible picture of when Ruth says, I am Ruth, your maid, so spread your covering over your maid for you are a close relative. She's saying, will you redeem me? This isn't, again, as I mentioned the last two weeks, this isn't pastor-preacher thing of trying to bring the gospel in. It's just there. The gospel of Jesus is all over this book and all over these chapters, specifically this idea of a goel. And what happens is, is there's going to come a moment where you recognize that there is one who is able to redeem you. But when he says, who are you, do you have the understanding of who you are? She says, I am Ruth, your maid. She knows who she is, and she knows that what I am is I am just Ruth, the maid. And without you, there is no redemption, and what I need is to be, I need to be in your family. And so I'm coming with humility, and I'm even coming in faith of, will you redeem me? It's a beautiful picture of you hear the truth of who Christ is, and then what you recognize is that is incredibly good news, that there is one who came to redeem and to save. But for me to really get that, i got to understand the bad news, that I am a sinner separated from, from God, and so I need redemption, I need salvation. So I come in humility of my understanding that I need someone greater than me who is not broke, who is not destitute, who is not an idolater, who is not a foreigner, to redeem me. And so she comes in humility to the Goel. Have you ever come in humility to Christ? Or has there been a sense of like, I grew up in church, I went to VBS, I've heard the stories, you're supposed to save, save me. Or is there a humility of, I know who I am, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, and it's only possible if I would humble myself before the great Goel, before the great Redeemer. Has that ever been your story? Do you know who you are before Christ? 
And then whenever she shows up to Naomi, the first question Naomi asks is she says, who are you? She's basically saying, are you, are you Mrs. Boaz? Have you been redeemed? And this is the beautiful thing and the beautiful picture. She hasn't been redeemed at this point, but Boaz is at work to make redemption possible. And what he will not do, what he will not do is violate the law in order to make redemption possible. He will come about to fulfill the law in order for redemption to be made possible. Exactly what Jesus did for you. He didn't just buy it, just kind of skirt by the law and go, oh, that's not that important. It's Old Testament. That's the God of the Old Testament. No, that is God by his justice and his standards saying, this is the truth. And if you violate it, you are a lawbreaker and a sinner. And what you need is someone to come along and fulfill this law and keep all of its requirements to, to the, the, the yod and the tittle, as we found in, in Matthew chapter 5, that it's going to be fulfilled. And then when I have fulfilled it, when I have fulfilled it, I will come along and I will redeem you. And now who you are, in this instance, you are my wife. Now who you are, you are the church, the bride of Christ. Are you a part of the bride of Christ? That he has redeemed you because you know, you knew, you know who you are, sinner in need of a savior. And then here he comes, fulfilling the law, dying the death, fulfilling the sacrificial system upon that cross, and then not staying dead, defeating death, rising from the dead to demonstrate that he has the means. Remember, Goel has to have the means to redeem you. He has the ability and the power in his blood to redeem you. I had a whole slew of scripture to prove to you that Jesus is the Goel. I can't give it to you because it's time for us to go, but it's so good. It's all throughout scripture. Remember I said a Goel is a relative? Why do you think we have the incarnation? He became flesh. Why? So he could redeem. That's a Goel. What was the second the quality of a Goel? Second quality is he has to have the means. I had scripture that his blood is the means to purchase your redemption. He is qualified to be a Goel. And then the third one is that he is willing. Oh, he is willing to say, not my will be done, but your will be done, that I would redeem you. Such good news. So here's my question to you as we close. Who are you? Not, not what did you hear growing up? Who are you? And maybe more importantly, whose are you? Because you're either the Goels, Jesus, or you are in the kingdom of darkness and you belong to the prince of the air. That's not to scare you. That's just to tell you the truth. So let's pray. Father, I ask that as we dismiss through a time of response, that we wouldn't just go through the motions, but that we would recognize that you are the one who brought the great Goel to preserve us, and to make yourself glorified. Right, may we worship you. With your head bowed and your eyes closed, I just want to—I just want to ask this, these two questions. It's the same one: Who are you? And if you have been redeemed by the great Goel, the Redeemer then what I'm going to ask you to do in just a moment is I'm going to ask you to worship because that's what you do. Every time Ruth has been in the presence of Boaz, the Goel, man, she is just humbled and moved and overwhelmed.
there's an element of worship there. So don't just get up and be like, oh, what's next? What's for lunch? Worship the one who thought you worthy enough and wanted to. Some of you don't feel this way. He wanted to redeem you. Some of you don't feel that way, but man, don't let your feelings override the truth that you, you were worthy to be redeemed because he said so. But if you're one that you're sitting here and you're not sure, when I ask the question, who are you? And you're just not sure. Or you're on the journey of trying to figure that out. Whether you're in the room or whether you're watching this online, even months from now. If you're online, email me. If you're in the room, come and talk to me. We have a couple elders here in the back. Raise your hand and just say, I'd just like somebody to pray with me or begin a conversation. And they'll see that hand. They'll come and, they'll come and visit with you. I just want you to be able to walk away knowing who you are. I pray in Jesus' name that that would be the case for us. So if you would, would you guys stand? If you have been redeemed, man, worship through this song. Worship and just give your praise and adoration to the Lord. It's a beautiful song. I wrote down one specific line. Whether or not we're singing it, I'm not so, I'm not 100%. But, uh, it says his love is so great. The love of God is greater than words or pen can ever tell. God gave his son to win us. Another way to say is God gave his son to reconcile us. God gave his son to pardon you. God gave his son to redeem you. I think that's worthy of worship. So sing. Worship the Redeemer. <laughs>